Thanks for tuning into a sermon from Redemption Hill Church. It's our prayer that God would use this to stir your affections for Jesus, that the Spirit would work through his word being expounded as you listen to this message. As a reminder, podcasts and audio and video are great, but they aren't a replacement for the local church family. And so if you're part of Redemption Hill, a reminder to come and join us. If you're not in Washington, D.C., we would love for you to get connected to a local church where you can be loved and cared for. If you'd like to give to the ongoing ministries of Redemption Hill Church, you can do so at our website, redemptionhilldc.org. Thanks for listening. Well, this morning we are going to continue through our series through the seven churches in Revelation. So if you have a Bible, you can open it up to Revelation chapter 2. The verses will also hit the screen. Today we come to the church in Thyatira. Um, so this is the fourth of our seven, and so we've, we've kind of turned to the halfway point as we continue on together. Um, this week, as we, as we look at Thyatira, I was struck, there was a sociologist named Peter Berger. Peter Berger actually died this past week. Um, Peter Berger was a brilliant sociologist. He coined a term that has become foundational for the way that we see th- an aspect of culture, even if, if it's an unfamiliar term for you. The term he coined in his book, Sacred Canopy, is plausibility structures. And that is what Peter Berger said was that within a cultural context, there will become assumed norms, whether it's issues of morality or just cultural practice, um, that back up, of, that are all backed up institutionally in a value set of beliefs. So things become normal and, and assumed within a culture, and we don't even see that there are issues with them. And if you stand outside of that value set, you're seen as crazy. Now this happens in minimal ways. I mean, it happens in issues like what we eat, and so we could dive into deeper issues, but it's more fun to stay on the surface for just a moment. So, um, I really enjoy spicy food and curries. I spent a little bit of time in Southeast Asia, and there was one morning in particular, and this happened many mornings, but the first time it happened, it really struck me that I was served a delicious, spicy chicken curry over rice, and I was served that dish at seven in the morning for breakfast. And I didn't even realize at the time, I was like, wow, you, I'm curry for breakfast. I mean, what, what brought this on? And, and um, because that isn't normal for us, right? We assume culture. What are the kinds of things that you eat for breakfast? Cereal, <laughs> donuts, waffles, sweet, bready, starchy things, often in the American context. Maybe you like more savory stuff and you go for eggs and bacon and, and things like that, but most of us don't think, you know what I want this morning? I want a delicious hot curry to start my day. Um, but that wasn't, it was a, it, those are cultural norms. It's not like anybody has dictated. It isn't God himself saying to us, thou shalt eat Lucky Charms for breakfast. And in fact, we're probably better off with a curry. And so that's, but within a cultural context, there are assumptions and norms for the kinds of things we eat, but that's minimal. That also happens in morals and in view, in perspectives, in really in our entire worldview. And honestly, if you want an explanation for our current political climate, really, Peter Berger's concept of plausibility structures gives it to us. That's what's made it so that our political climate is so polarized right now, and really, there's a stark divide that often is drawn on lines whether you're in an urban setting or a more rural setting. And so, within that, there's different plausibility structures and assumptions of what people assume we all agree is right and best, and we can't imagine that somebody would be outside of that. And so it makes it so that when someone is outside of those plausibility structures, we see them as either crazy or evil. Close-minded, bigoted. 
And those words get thrown around on both sides. And so weak Christianity has no defense to this. And when a church has, has, has a weak understanding of what they believe, then there's really nothing to stand against the tides of our cultural context this way. And, and for too often in the American church, we've seen an easy believism in Christianity with no connection to discipleship. It's, it's Christians assuming that all we have to do is believe the right things, say the right prayer, we get our fire insurance, and you go on with life the way that you want to live it. Focused on baptizing people in the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit, but not teaching people to obey what Jesus commanded. And so the morals and norms of our cultural context have invaded the church itself, and the beliefs that we hold are begin to be reshaped because what our hearts desire, our minds will justify and our wills will pursue. And so this is Thyatira. And this is what we see in Thyatira. In Revelation chapter two, we come to the fourth of our seven churches, and it says this. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the mind and heart, and I will give to each each of you according to your works." But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast to what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, so with, as with all of the churches through this series, a little bit of historical background is helpful as we understand what was happening in Thyatira, what the culture of the city of Thyatira was, because that'll help us understand what Jesus has to say to this church. Thyatira, you know, last week we looked at, at Pergamum, and Pergamum, we, we learned, was a government town. It was an important city that had a massive library, one of the largest libraries in the ancient world. It was, it, so it was well-educated, a center for medicine and healing, a center for government and power, a military center. And so we were able to say, man, there's a lot of parallels between Pergamum and D.C. And, and all these things that we could understand from that context. Thyatira is the least important of the seven cities. Polar opposite of Pergamum. It was, it was a town that was 40 miles southeast of Pergamum, which you can see is, the, remember this was a communications circuit that Roman communication would go through, beginning in Ephesus and then going up to Smyrna, to Pergamum. Now we're down to Thyatira as, as we're headed southeast. 
about 40 miles southeast of Pergamum. There is a modern town called Akazar that's built on the site, um, but it's not, it wasn't a continuation of that city of Thyatira, so there's very little that we actually know about this city because no excavation has been done because there's a modern town there. But there's one thing that we do know about Thyatira from writings that were around the time that even this book of Revelation was written, and that is that Thyatira was a trade town. It sat on a crossroads. And, on that, and because it sat on a major crossroads, it had markets and merchants, and so it, there were especially guilds and trade guilds for shoemakers and dyed cloth and bronze workers. And so these guilds were essentially, they, they ruled the town of Thyatira. A trade guild it was essentially a union. Um, for different, and there were different types for every different artisan that you might have. And so there were merchant guilds and tanners and bakers and potters and metal workers. And each guild was, was a center of life for the people that were involved in it. And so it wasn't a requirement that everyone was in a guild. You could try to be a bronze worker that wasn't part of the guild. But virtually everyone was because it gave you a community. It gave you protection of being a part of it. And then each guild had a patron god or goddess. And so the guild would gather together for social functions and religious functions. These were all wrapped in together. And so for early Christians in the Roman Empire, this brought a significant conflict for them because participation in a guild would also mean participation in a temple and it would mean participation with gods that Christians considered to be false. And so there were religious expectations for being in a guild. You couldn't just be in a bronze guild and decide, you know what, I'm here because I want to sell my, my goods that I make. I want to be protected as part of this trade union. Instead, it was much more, all encom more encompassing than that. And, there were, and you were part of the worship of the patron god or goddess. In addition to that, there were moral expectations. There was a culture that each guild held. And so a refusal to participate in the guilds would have huge implications for people. And if a Christian stood outside of the plausibility structures of their guild, then they would be rejected socially and it could have economic impact on them because they wouldn't be able to get work. And so this was, a, this was an important issue that Christians faced. And in Thyatira, it was a hot issue that Christians faced. And if you are here today and you are a Christian, this is an issue that you will face, particularly if you live here in D.C. Um, if you're not from D.C., then there are places in this country where it still holds, or where it, it somewhat holds cultural capital to say that you're a Christian. Within the District of Columbia, that is just not the case. Most of you, your careers and your work will not be made easier by holding to biblical values and morals and norms. And for most of you, that's actually something that's going to be held against you at points because people are going to say that you're outside of the plausibility structures of our city. It's, it, to be a Christian in this town, at least one who actually believes in Christ, who believes that he is the way and the truth and the life, the only way to God as he claimed to be, we've seen, we saw this last week as we talked about, about Senate hearings that are happening even now where, where people are being told that to hold an exclusivity of Christ makes you unfit for public service here. And so it puts you outside of the cultural norms. To hold biblical morality, even if just for your own life, will be seen as closed and closed-minded. And so the word to Thyatira is important for us here. And so we'll see the same pattern that we see with all of the churches as we walk through this now. It begins with a vision of Jesus Christ. 
And so with each of the seven churches, Jesus comes to the church and he has characteristics that he proclaims about himself, things that he holds out that are the most important aspect of who he is for this church to understand. And so in Ephesus, we are able to see that Jesus walks or holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the lampstands. Then he tells Ephesus they are doctrinally correct but have lost love and they're in danger of losing their church itself, their lampstand. The church in Smyrna was struggling and suffering and, and headed into intense persecution. And Jesus came to them and said to them, I, these, I am the one who died and came to life to tell the suffering Christians in Smyrna that they could pass through death with confidence because Jesus had the power of life. In Pergamum, we saw that Jesus has the sharp two-edged sword, and it's because he was proclaiming that his word is living and active, and it does expose us, and, he, and the people in Pergamum had turned away from right teaching. And so now we come to Thyatira, and did you catch what it says about him? He says, I am the son of God, and his eyes are like flames of fire, and his feet are like burnished bronze. Now again, this revelation uses apocalyptic imagery, so that might not immediately jump out at you as under, to understand what Jesus means by that. At least the lampstands and the stars back in chapter one, he tells us what that means. And for this, we have to go dig a little bit deeper. What this means, he has, so he says first, I am the son of God. He's saying, I am the one with divine authority. He is proclaiming that and standing on that, that he has the, the authority of God himself. This imagery of eyes of fire and feet of bronze that comes from Daniel chapter six and a vision that, that the prophet Daniel had. And what it tells us is the eyes of fire are, are, it's Jesus saying that he has the ability to see through and expose who we are. He sees us, he knows us. This is what he says in verse 23. I am he who searches mind and heart and I will give to each of you according to your works. And so his eyes penetrate and see, and then his feet of bronze. Remember, there was a bronze guild in Thyatira. And so this was something they were familiar with. And, and the, the, bronze, the feet of bronze here is like burnished bronze. He's saying that, that it's showing his glory and his strength. That where Jesus stands is holy and pure, and it's fixed. It isn't changing where he stands is resolute and unbreakable. And so this imagery, when he says, I am the son of God with eyes of fire and feet of bronze, what Jesus is saying to the church in Thyatira and to us is that he is the one in righteous authority given by God himself, that he is the one who sees us, our motives and our hearts, and that where he stands is holy, that Christ is the only righteous judge. There's nothing that we think or that we do that goes unseen. There's never a time when Christ will bow to our whims and change where he stands because of the whims of our culture. And this is where most of us will balk at real Christianity. Even those of you who've walked with Jesus for a long time, none of us likes to give someone else the fullness of authority over our lives. It doesn't feel good to say that, to, to be confronted and feel the sting of, of, of being of correction. We don't want to acknowledge authority. But we also need to realize that if the God we worship never corrects us, 
and doesn't contradict us, if there's never a point where we're made uncomfortable in encountering him, and, and where our lives are, and our patterns and our behaviors are confronted, then the God that we are worshiping has been, is something that we have shaped in our image and likeness. And it is not the fullness of the holiness of God that's shown to us in this imagery. Jesus sees you. He knows you. He is holy and pure and strong. And if you're in Jesus' church, he is the only one in authority. And so in Thyatira, we learn that Jesus sees us and he is holy. And so then he goes on to praise the church in Thyatira, which he does for most of the churches. He says to them, he says, he says, I know your works, your love, your faith, your service, your patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. And so this is, this is, these are great things for them to hear from Jesus. He's saying, I see you. Where I stand is holy. And he's saying, when I look at your church, when I see what's happening in this place, there's good things that are happening. There's, these are things that are missing in Ephesus. Remember in Ephesus, he says to the church, hey, you've stood against false teachers and clung to good doctrine, but you've given up love. And so the call that Jesus has in Ephesus is return to the, to the works of love that you had at the first. Here in Thyatira, they have that. They're doing good things. They're, they're, they, and I would love to hear this kind of praise for Redemption Hill. These are things that we should aspire to have Jesus say to our church, to say, I see what ha what's happening here. I see the good things that, are, that you're doing. I see your love and faith and service and patient endurance. And, and those things only increase over time. It's getting better and better. For Jesus to look at us and say, hey, your community groups are deeply engaged with each other. People have a place to come and feel welcomed, really, truly in family. That, that people are cared for and supportive, ta supported tangibly and intangibly. That they know that they're in a place where it's safe to wrestle through the issues of life. The, the missional initiatives in your community groups are really impacting the city. People have been released to pursue their passions and, and DC would notice if Redemption Hill was gone because of the impact that we're having in this place and, and that you're enduring and carrying on the name of Christ in this place. These are things that we should aspire to, church. And I think they're here. But in Thyatira, in spite of this praise, there's an awfully big but that comes next. Jesus goes on to say, but I have this against you. You tolerate this woman, that woman, Jezebel. Calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to produce, to practice sexual immorality and eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent. And so there's judgment coming. Jesus says, I'll throw her onto a sickbed. And those who commit adultery with her, I'll throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. I'll strike her children dead, and the churches will know that I am he who searches the mind and the heart. So something's gone on in Thyatira. There's somebody that's teaching false things and that people are following. It says that she's a Jezebel. Now, this is language from 1 Kings 16. If you'd like to go and read more about who Jezebel is, you can go spend time in 1 Kings 16 later on today. Jezebel married King Ahab. And she, as she married King Ahab, she became a type for wickedness because she pulled the king, seduced that king away to worship a false god, Baal. 
And, he, and, and there, as he did, it pulled the whole nation into Baal worship. And so this is, this, this be, she became a type, a form that is used biblically to talk about somebody who's wicked and pulls people into false worship. We do this too. It's like if somebody said, calls somebody a Benedict Arnold, none of us goes, ah, they must be a trustworthy person. We know what that means immediately. That means that somebody's a traitor. You can't trust them. They're going to betray you. They've done something awful to betray those closest to them and do, done great damage through that betrayal. We know we don't need a cultural explanation for somebody being called a Benedict Arnold. Similarly, these people would not have needed an explanation when they, were, when they heard this word used, this type of saying, there's somebody in this church that is a Jezebel. But I think this is actually a real person too. I don't think her name was Jezebel. I think Jesus is calling out somebody in this church though. It was a prophetess. Someone who was leading people into false worship. Somebody who was leading people into sexual immorality. And, and in Thyatira, because of what we know about the city, it's almost certain that what was happening was connected to those trade guilds that we talked about. And so it's not hard to imagine the kinds of things that could, that could be taught to Christians at this time. And picture it. Somebody that would come in and say, you don't need to reject everything about your guild. You can, you can do those things because there's freedom in Christ. We know that, that these gods and idols are nothing. They have no power. And so you can go and participate in the feasts and the temples and in the social functions, and, and it's not a big deal. And, and in fact, the, the norms that are being taught in the church about how sex gets used, those are old and antiquated. That isn't how cultured people in this town act. And so really, are you going to risk your entire career and your family's well-being and your livelihood to make some moral stand outside of the guild? That stuff gets seductive. And you want to hear, the, you hear those, people would hear those things and say, I can fit into society still. I can embrace these norms. I can fall into these things and, 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 and mix it in with, my, with Christianity. And, but on Sundays, I can still go and worship Jesus as, as the top God that I worship. And Jesus calls it out here. And when he talks about sexual immorality and adultery in this passage, um, there's ambiguity that I, I believe is really intentional here between, I think, actual sexual practice and an imagery that's used throughout the prophets for Israel's unfaithfulness to God. This is God's language. When you read the prophets, the prophets are difficult to read at times and difficult to stomach at times. The kind of thing that if I was just, just start, op if I opened Ezekiel 23 and started reading it in this text, those of you that have kids in the service right now would be like covering their ears and writing me angry emails later. And I'd just say, it's Ezekiel. But God calls out Israel's unfaithfulness again and again and again. He says, you have prostituted yourself with false gods. You're cheating on me. You're violating the marriage covenant between God and his people. That's language that's used over and over, and I think that's some of what's happening here, is there is almost certainly an actual sexual activity aspect where the Christians here are justifying wrong action. But the deeper issue is that they are cheating on the covenant relationship they have with God through Christ with false gods. The same thing was happening in Corinth, and we can see Paul addressing the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 5 and 6, going after these same issues of temple worship and temple prostitution. 
And so Jesus here is calling out a teacher in that church and saying this person is under his judgment and and has not repented, and those who are her children who have followed after her will end up in the same fate that she does. Now, this is awfully familiar to us, isn't it? There's some really good things about self-publishing, about social media, about the blogosphere, that voices can be heard and people can raise their voices. There's, there's a great aspect to all of those things, and there's lots of negatives, too. At this stage in history, you can find somebody who has written something to support anything that you want to do, that will back it up with Bible verses and tell you why you're justified in doing it. And again, this is the, the issue for us is that so often we're, we want to go and follow our hearts. In culture, that's what we're told we ought to be doing is go and follow your hearts. Do what you're passionate about and you'll never work another day in your life, said Steve Jobs. And so we want to follow our hearts. And so whatever our hearts desire, we, we go, you know what? I can find a way to think about this and I'll find an author who's written a blog or a book that supports what I think so that I can justify the things that I want to do anyway. And then we can go and pursue it. And so this shows up in all kinds of areas, but certainly one of the issues right now culturally that we face is a turn in sexuality and a tolerance of cultural norms within the church. So we need to hear today that when Jesus comes to Thyatira and comes to us, he is the one that is the son of God. He has eyes of fire and feet of bronze. He sees us, he knows us, he knows the intentions of our hearts. And he knows the things that we're pursuing. The church has stood counterculturally on issues of sex since its beginning. That's not new. And so when you feel like there's pressure now that's different than what the church has ever faced in history, you're wrong. It faced it in Thyatira. Around 100 AD, almost 2,000 years ago. The church, is, the church has always had a perspective on sexuality that is different than the city around them. And, and so uh, in Thyatira, this is what's happening, and it's happening here too. But plenty of churches have written off biblical sexuality and, and really gone toward what is a syncretized belief that's Christianity in name but has no moral implications. And what's happened is, to use the Peter Berger language we started with, that church has adopted the plausibility structures of our surroundings. We've let them in. Now, it's important here to note this is a letter to a church, so this is within the church. We talked about this last week, too, that Jesus' primary, primary concern here is not what's happening culturally in Thyatira, it's what those who claim to be his followers are practicing. But here, what he's saying is that the church has embraced satanic theologies to support their twisted morality. And we need to feel the weight of this. To follow Jesus is a hard call to everyone. What he says in Luke chapter 9 to his disciples, when they identify him as the the Christ, the Son of God, the same title that's used here in Revelation chapter 2, is Jesus says to them, you're right, now if anyone would come after me, they need to take up their cross daily to follow me. He goes on in Luke chapter 9 to say, if anyone's gonna, gonna lose, is going to save his life, he needs to lose it. If anyone is going to save his life, or he's going to save his life, he needs to, so here, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. 
What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and the holy angels. The people in Thyatira needed to go back to Luke chapter 9 and hear Jesus' words then. To say there's a lot that you have to give up to follow Christ. It is costly to follow him. And it may cost a lot, but what does it gain? What does it profit you if you gain the whole world and lose yourself in the process? To become ashamed of Christ and what his, he calls us to well, means that we are going to more likely justify the norms that we want to fit into than what Christ has said. And I understand that this is difficult when we get to the concept of sexuality because the biblical concept of sexuality is incredibly narrow. It's incredibly narrow. But too many Christians have swallowed the lie that sexuality and sexual activity are an issue of identity. Jesus is the most fully realized human being who has ever lived. And he never had sex. It used to be, and, and, and it has so often been, that, that a level of self-control has been admired. But now, if you practice a level of sexual self-control, you'll be told by people in our city that you're repressing your true happiness and true identity. Jesus died a homeless, poor virgin. And if we follow him, we need to remember that that's who we worship as our God. And so our pursuits of sex and wealth and material security have no example in his life and ministry. To follow Jesus is to find a new identity in him, not in the ways and shapes and, and forms that our city tells us must be our identity. And the identity that we find in Christ is so much deeper and so much fuller than sexuality. And I have so much admiration for those, even in our church, some of you who have chosen to embrace singleness, whatever your sexual desires might be, um, some of you that have embraced singleness in, and, and, and wrestle with attraction to same sex, some of you that have embraced singleness and, and wrestle with attraction to, to the opposite sex, when the, the prevailing opinion of our city would be, go and indulge those things to find your identity in them. And you have chosen to say, my identity is secure in Christ, and I don't need sex to be more human. I have such deep admiration for you because you're standing against the tides of our culture. In Thyatira, there was a syncretism that was happening in their worship and in their morality. And Jesus is calling them out on it. And so we see next his warning and encouragement to the church. He goes on to say to the rest of you in Thyatira, and so there's a call first to repent. He's saying, repent, I've given her time to repent, this Jezebel, and I'll strike down her children unless they repent of her work. So there's an opportunity, a call here to repent. 
And then he goes on to say in verse 24, but to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I don't lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast to what you have until I come. And so in Thyatira, we really get a mold, a roadmap to what it means for a Christian, for a follower of Jesus Christ, to live counterculturally. And the first is to walk in repentance. And this is the call to every one of us this morning. It should be terrifying to us to read that Jesus has eyes of fire and feet of bronze, that he stands as the Son of God. This is frightening imagery to say he sees you and he sees every thought you have and the intentions of your heart, and, and he stands in a place of holiness that is firm. And, and for us, any one of us, if we don't feel an element of, of understanding our own sin in light of his holiness, then we aren't really being confronted with who he is. Christ knows you and he sees you. Now, the, the good news, though, is that he calls all of us to repentance. Every one of us. That means that if you're here today and you're far from Christ you, and you've never embraced him, you can turn today in repentance and he will embrace you. He will bring you to where he stands. He will fill you with his spirit and give you his righteousness and sanctify you and cleanse you to, to bring you into his presence for now and eternity. And it also means that if you're here today and you're a Christian, that you're called to repent of the ways that you've allowed our city to reshape your identity. See, Christians are never in a position that we should be arrogant about anything. The gospel that we proclaim, the news that we have to tell, is that on our own we are damned we're hopeless, every one of us, that there is nothing we can do to earn our way into God's favor, but that Christ saved us, that his work completed on the cross for us in our place for our sin is our only hope, and that a glorious transaction occurred in his death, that our sin was given to him and he gave us his righteousness that he showed us that he has power over sin and death by, by rising from death to life and now ascended still alive to the right hand of God the Father in heaven. And so this is why Luther, did you know that this is the 500th anniversary of the Reformation this year? That's exciting for church history nerds like me. This is the 500th anniversary of Luther on, on Halloween, um, October 31st, going to the church door in Wittenberg and nailing his 95 theses to the church door. Do you know what his first thesis was? When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. So, church, if repentance isn't something you do and accomplish once, that gets you into heaven as your, as your you know, get out of jail free card. It's not a one-time prayer that you say. It is a posture throughout our lifetime to acknowledge that we need Christ's holiness and righteousness and that in his presence we stand condemned and sinful without him. And so we repent. We need to be careful not to syncretize our desires with Christianish language or teach others to do the same. So what is repentance? If that's one of the key calls to Christians, what is repentance? I think that this is important for us because too often we think of repentance as being a subjective kind of internal emotional thing. And so 
really we get conf- repentance confused with remorse and with fear. What is remorse? Remorse is when you get caught doing something and you feel really bad. This happens to our kids all the time that often when we ask them to say that they're sorry, I think what they're feeling in that moment is not repentance. What they're feeling is remorse. They feel sad because they got caught. This is what happens for me when I get caught with junk food. If Alyssa walks into the kitchen and I'm supposed to be dieting, which is my entire life, and I, she sees me with a donut, somebody, our neighbor gave us five district donuts this past week. He just walked over to our door and handed us five district donuts. If you haven't eaten a district donut, you don't understand that that's like $30 worth of donuts. And so they delivered these five, and one of them was a creme brulee donut, and it called to me. So I waited until my kids had cut it in half so that the first one up could have half of that donut, and then I cut off like a third of what was left, hoping that no one would notice that the other half was cut into, so I could eat the creme brulee donut without being caught. But if I was caught in that moment, what I would feel would be remorse. I would feel bad that I'd been caught. I did not feel bad eating the donut. Then I might move from remorse to fear, fear that I would be caught again, or found out that I wasn't really repentant. Repentance would be me losing the desire for donuts or confronting that desire within my heart, and I do not feel repentant about donuts. So that's my confession to you today. (laughs) I do not feel repentant. I will continue to sneak them any chance I get in fear that I'll get caught, at which point I'll feel, feel remorse. When we think we repent, too often this is the cycle we're in. And so when I say Jesus has eyes of fire and feet of bronze today, you feel an element of fear, or you begin to justify that away and say, nah, that's too extreme. Or you get afraid and say, oh man, I don't know if I can be confronted by that. I don't know what's going to get exposed within me. And what if the preacher today starts talking about this issue? He's been kind of vague and ambiguous about the issues he's approaching, but what if he gets specific and it's this issue, you know, how am I going to react to that? Maybe I'll get angry with him. You get afraid of where things are going to go. And then, then you feel bad about it and feeling bad about it, you go, oh, well, Jesus, I'm sorry. That's remorse driven by fear, but that's still not repentance. Repentance turns from the foolish attachments of our own hearts. It pursues Christ, believing that he has the power to transform our minds. And it reshapes our will to follow him in obedience in our outward lives. Repentance is not just feeling bad about something you've done. It's turning away from the desires of your heart to pursue something better. And in Christ, what you're pursuing will always be better. And so the the call that he has to the church in Thyatira, even to the false teacher in Thyatira, the ones who, who has led so many of these people on a wrong path, the call that Jesus has is still repent. Leave that stuff behind. Stop embracing the worship, the false worship of these trade guilds. Stop thinking that you can be a Christian and pursue false religion. Stop thinking you can be a Christian and have an empty Christianity that adopts the plausibility structures of your surrounding city and never has any practical outworking in obedience and discipleship. To follow Christ is a radical change in every one of our lives that we give up who we are and embrace the name that he gives us and who he has claimed us to be. That's the only hope we have. 
And if Christians are going to live counterculturally, we need to adopt a posture ongoing of repentance. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you need to hear that what Jesus invites us to is not something that's going to further our name and fame in this city at this this time, but he invites us into a lifetime of repentance. And the closer we get to him, the more his eyes will search our hearts and the more that we'll get exposed. And so the thing about walking with Jesus is you never get to a point where you're like, yeah, I got it nailed down because our hearts are fickle. We can't trust them, but we can trust him. The second call that he has to Christians is to hold fast until he comes. My hope today If you're a follower of Jesus, if you've embraced him, or if you decide to embrace him and follow him today, is that you would feel the relief that comes with the call that he has for us in verses 24 and 25. Yeah, 24 and 25. Do you see this? Yes, there's a call to repentance. There's a call to obedience, to pursue Jesus, to lay down our lives and take up our cross daily and follow him. Obedience is part of the Christian life so that we're not just baptizing people, but we are teaching people to obey everything Jesus has commanded us. Those things are important and true, and still what Jesus has to say is to the rest of you who haven't fallen into the syncretism and and false teaching, to the rest of you who, who haven't learned what some are calling the deep things of Satan, who haven't allowed this into your own hearts and lives, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast to what you have until I come. I do not lay on you any other burden. Do you hear this? This is what Jesus said in Matthew 11 when he said, come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden, everyone who is working hard and running hard and weighed down by, whether it's weighed down by by trying to achieve our own obedience, our own righteousness, he says, come to me and I will give you rest. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Church, we can be too easily seduced by teachings that come from Satan. We can be too easily seduced because we we get itchy ears. That's the way Paul talks about it to Timothy, a young pastor. People have itching ears that they'll be longing for the things they want to hear. People want, we want people to come up and justify us. We want to come to church and leave feeling justified in the stands that we already have and in the, in the, in the paths that our hearts are already headed down. And we want to be just, we want to, we have itching ears that we come and we want to hear new things and creative things and, and we want to hear things that, that promise us freedom even though we know that they lead to death. And Jesus' call to us is cling to him and him alone. In Thyatira, there were implications to clinging to Jesus and Jesus alone, to holding fast to him and him alone. There were implications that were economic. These people could lose their income. 
by being seen as standing outside of the stance of the guilds. These people could, would have social implications. They would lose their friends in their social circles. And there would be societal implications that, that they would never gain power or influence or standing in their city. And we have the same risks. So, do we hold fast? How do we avoid falling into the teachings of Satan that infiltrate the church? Hold fast to what you have until Jesus comes. He's given us his word. Read it. Study it. Come to know his truth. You know, there's a classic fear when I talk to Christians about, about talking to other people about their faith, when I talk to some of you, that what if I don't have the answer to some argument, or what if somebody comes up with something I haven't thought of before, and, 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 and that, that is guaranteed to happen. If you talk to people, there will be arguments that you can't answer. There will be ideas that you've never heard. And the answer cannot be for us to try to learn every one of those arguments, but come to know God's word. Allow the Spirit to use it in your life. Read it in the trusted community of believers in the church who can challenge you and correct you. And so the call to us, the warning and exhortation to live as Christians counterculturally is to repent and to hold fast to what we have. And then do you see what the promise is? To the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as, I my, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. See, the promise is that if we repent and hold fast to Jesus, then the authority and the power and the glory that we give up now will be given to us tenfold in the end that it's authority and power beyond anything we could ever imagine, that this idea of, of a rod of iron and the morning star, the morning star is used later in Revelation to talk about Christ himself and his glory. And, and so the promise to believers, to followers of Christ is you will have a share of Christ's authority, you have a share of his glory and reign with him in the end. We need to hear this, because, this promise because power and glory are so deeply seductive. This town is driven by power and glory. That's why we get nervous around famous and powerful people. I don't know who it is for you, but there's somebody in your life that if you were in their presence, your, your palms would start to sweat. But don't limit yourself to seeking personal power and glory now. Power and influence are as seductive as they are fleeting. They're illusions, they're grasping for a mist. We need to stop turning to other people for power and glory, for the affirmation of our identity. They're Christ's to give. In Psalm chapter two, David wrote a psalm that anticipated and looked ahead to Christ, to the reign of the Lord's ultimate anointed. And it says, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. 
Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. You hear that? This is the imagery that Jesus is drawing on. He says, repent, hold fast what you have till I come, and you'll have a chance to reign with me with a rod of iron, and as the nations are dashed like pottery, you'll be, you'll be given a morning star. We will reign with Christ in his power, in his glory, if we take refuge in him and don't fall into the systems of our surrounding city. And so Thyatira raises the question for us. Are we going to follow the plausibility structures of the society around us without question or challenge? Will we look for false teachers and false prophets who spin things that are, that to justify our heart's desires but never challenge them? Jesus sees us. He alone is holy. Jesus, the Son of God, with eyes of fire and feet of bronze, sees our hearts and our thoughts He stands in holiness. He's provided us a path that will give us life and hope, but that life and hope only comes when we deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow him. But he is the one who gives us rest for our souls. Let's pray. Father, thank you that there is hope for us, that we can turn in repentance and find life, Thank you that there's a promise for us of glory that is beyond anything we can gain here. And so we pray today, I pray that you would move in our hearts to draw us to repentance, that you would help us to hold fast to the gospel, pure and holy, and that you would would move within us and our church, that we would see that our ultimate hope lies in you and not in what we can gain um, by capitulating to the plausibility structures around us. So Father, we lift these things up to you in the name of Christ. Amen.